0: Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 11 today. We started a new sermon series on the book of Judges last week. Uh, We learned it's the seventh book of the Bible. So as you start from the front, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, then Judges. Judges chapter 2. What I want us to see in the book of Judges today is there is a cycle that we're going to see over and over again in this book. And I want us to see it here in the beginning. In in Judges chapter 2, the narrator, a lot of folks say the author is Samuel. We don't know that for sure. But the author of this book just sets says, Hey, look, this is the pattern you're going to see in the Judges. He just tells us in Judges chapter 2. And then he shows us the pattern as we begin through these 12 Judges. We see it in Othniel and in Ehud. Not so much Shamgar, bless him, he only gets one verse and that's all he gets. Uh, Even with Deborah and as we go on, we're going to see this cycle over and over again. So today I want to introduce you to this cycle that we'll see in the book of Judges. Basically it's a cycle of rebellion. Uh, Then the people will go have experienced some kind of oppression. Then the people will turn to God in confession And then finally, God will rescue them, so salvation. If you want more alliteration, if you don't like the I-O-N endings there and you like the beginnings to all go together, we're going to call this rebel, ruin, repent, rescue, and then repeat because we just keep going through that cycle. We'll talk about these, and I want you to be able to recognize this in the book of Judges as we go through the cycle. But I want to introduce you to this cycle for another reason. Because this cycle does not just describe the people of God in the book of Judges. This cycle really describes our lives. (laughs) It describes the people of God today. We say about it this morning, oh Lord, I'm prone to wander, I feel it. And we go our own way that rebellion. And then God works in our lives through our circumstances, in our heart, and brings some kind of hardship, ruin, I called it, oppression, we'll see in the text. And he does that to draw us back to him, to bring us to our senses so that we will repent, so that we'll turn from our wandering, so that we cry out to him, And then what we learn from the book of Judges is that God is so faithful to his people. That these people in the book of Judges, who I'm just going to be honest with you, they're bad. (laughs) These are bad, bad people. I know we're supposed to use better adjectives than that, but they're just bad. We're going to see it through the book. We saw it last week. But even these people who are just awful, do appalling things, when they cry out to him. God is so faithful to respond and to save them and to give them peace, to give them rest, as we talked about this morning in Sunday school. And as that goodness comes and they experience peace in the land, just like us, get a little complacent, get a little lackadaisical, feeling pretty good about ourselves, and repeat, we begin to wander, we rebel again and again. So let's look at this cycle. I want to show it to you in the book of Judges, but I especially want you to see it in your own heart in hopes that you also see the faithfulness of God to people who don't deserve it, people like them, people like us. And my prayer has been that you would cry out to God, that as you live through this cycle, you would be quicker to run to him and to cry out to him. Because you have heard the testimony of his faithfulness. Let's look together at the scriptures and let me show you this cycle. Number one, rebellion. The people rebel. The text over and over again says God's people do evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at Judges chapter 2, verse 11. Remember, this is the sort of introduction and the author is saying, hey, here's what's going to happen here in the book of Judges. Verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how it starts. That's the beginning of the cycle. Then you read in Judges chapter 3 when it's telling about the judge Othniel that God will raise up. Judges 3 and verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you're, wonder, if you're worried about not being able to see the cycle, it kind of jumps out at you. That's how it starts, right? What about the next one? When Ehud, the left-handed guy, look at Judges 3 and verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges chapter 4 verse 1 as we get to Deborah. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Won't be hard to spot the cycle. The people of God do evil in the eyes of the Lord. We'll come back through and talk about this more specifically. But I want you to see the cycle. Second. God's people experience ruin. First, there's this rebellion where they rebel, and then ruin or oppression is what the text says they experience. If you look in Judges chapter 2 and verse 14, where where the author is saying, Hey, here's what's going to happen in the book Judges 2 and verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. If you look down in Judges 2, in verse 18, it says that their enemies oppressed them. Same song, second verse, right? Judges chapter 3. We just read, the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, Judges 3 and verse 8, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of cushan Rishtham, king of Mesopotamia, and the people served that king for eight years. Next judge, Ehud, we read, the people again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done What was evil in the sight of the Lord? He gathered to himself Ammonites and Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Same song. Next verse, Judges chapter 4, talking about Deborah. We read in verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Chapter 4 and verse 2, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. You see the cycle, right? They rebel, they experience hardship, oppression. The Lord's hand is against them. They face ruin. Third step, repentance or confession, God's people cry out to him. In Judges 2, and it's giving us the pattern, down in verse 18, we're told, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. We see the pattern again in Joshua 3. They've served this king for eight years, verse, chapter 3, verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer of the people of Israel who saved them. Same pattern with Ehud, Judges 3, verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, who was a left-handed man. Judges chapter 4, verse 3. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. You kind of see the pattern there, right? This happens 12 times in the book. As we go through and we look at the people who experienced hardship crying out to him, And then God rescues them by sending a deliverer, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Shamgar, those first four that we're looking at together. So that's the pattern. That's what it looks like. Now I want to look at each one of these circumstances and focus on how these things are described. And yet, we want to learn about the book of Judges. It's interesting. We want to know more about it. But the reason we're looking at this is we want to see how the people rebel so that we're quicker to see how we rebel. We want to see the kinds of oppression and how God uses that so we see how God uses hardship in our life. We want to see how God responds to the people who cry out so we're quicker to cry out and seek the salvation of the Lord. So let's look at that together, looking at our, our cycle again, our cycle of rebellion. Remember, God's people do evil in the sight of the Lord. How does it describe that? Let's look back at Judges 2. We saw verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baals. Those were idols. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them. So this doing evil in the sight of the Lord, at least as we look at it here in the book of Judges, it involves the people of God going after the gods of the people around them. Now if you read the text really closely and you study it, You'll see that the people of God don't stop worshiping God. They don't change their religion, but they just combine the worship of the one true God with going after these other gods. The pagan worldview of the day was that there were many gods and that each were God over a certain area. So you had the God of agriculture. If you wanted to grow something, you might go sacrifice to Him, or the God of business, or the God of love, or the God of war. And you could mix and match these gods. Because no one God demanded lordship over every area of your life. So the danger for God's people was not that they changed religions. But they would adopt these other gods of the people around them. And just add that to the worship of the one true God. I wonder, what would that look like for us? What are the gods of the people around us? We read this as like, you know, I'm not worried about worshiping Baal, right? I'm not going to put up an Asherah pole in my yard. Well, of course not. Those aren't the gods of the people around us. Who are the gods of the people around us? How about money? People serve money. How about popularity? About fame or success boy we worship beauty and good looks don't we we find our identity in so many different things these days we find our identity in our jobs we find our identity in our gender we find our identity in our race we find our identity in our sexual preferences I think probably the biggest God of this age is just the God of autonomy. If you don't know what that means, it just means I will govern myself. I'm not going to be governed by anything else. I'll call the shots. I can be whatever I want to be, and I will declare it to be so. Listen, the biggest danger for us as the people of God is not that we will stop worshiping God. We will continue to come here and sing his praises. I think the church will go on. The biggest danger for us is that we maintain our doctrinal beliefs in our head. We can say the right thing. But then in our hearts, we divide our loyalty between the one true God and the gods of the people around us. Where's your loyalty divided? Where is it that you feel that your heart has a tendency to wander? You're prone to wander. We all have different things. Maybe it is money for you. Maybe it is good looks. Popularity or success or respect. Or independence and autonomy we need to know where it is that we are tempted to follow the gods of the people around us what is it you think you must have in order to be happy right usually we say I have to have Jesus and this thing put it on shirts Just have Jesus and coffee Jesus and counseling Jesus and my kids to be okay Jesus and success in my job. Jesus and your respect. Anything we add to Jesus, we're doing what these folks did and adopting with the one true God the worship of the people of the gods around us. There's another interesting description of what it means to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Look down in Judges two, in verse seventeen, it says, "Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods." Hoard, w h o r e d, yeah, hoard. Your your translation may say they prostituted themselves. Strong language. I told you we'd see some strong things, and we're just getting started. This is saying that the people of God gave themselves away for what they thought they could get from these other so-called gods who didn't really care for them, who were not really gods at all. I wonder, what do you give yourself to in hopes that it's going to give you what you really want? What do you spend your time thinking about when you don't have to think about anything else? When you're in the shower... I'm thinking I just want to wake up, right? When you're in the shower, when you're stopped at a red light and you can think about anything, when you're going to sleep at night, what is it that's on your mind? What is it that you're giving your mind and your heart to? This imagery that the writer uses to describe rebellion or what it means to do evil in the sight of the Lord, this imagery of of whoring ourselves or prostituting ourselves, God uses this strong, uh, this strong image, imagery in the text to teach us. God's showing us that his relationship with us is more intimate than what we typically think. And listen, I know we're so warped by our culture. When I say intimacy, you think sexuality. It's hard for us to even think about what intimacy with God is because we think of intimacy as something sexual and physical and God is a spirit. How are we even intimate with him? Well, I'll tell you. What I mean and what God is saying here is that God does not only want us to obey him like a citizen obeys a king, although he calls us to obedience. God is saying here that he doesn't only want us to follow him like sheep follow a shepherd, although he wants us to follow him. But he's saying he wants something more than your obedience, more than you're just following him. He's saying here that he also wants our hearts. He wants our love. He wants our affection, our admiration, our devotion, our loyalty, our faithfulness. He wants us to be true to him. I see folks here that I've gotten to do your wedding, and we always use that line, forsaking all others. It's what God wants in his relationship with you that you wouldn't look to other things for your identity or for provision or for security but that you would look to him our relationship with God is more exclusive it's more personal like a marriage in fact if you read Ephesians 5 really Paul is saying the opposite, that it's not that our relationship with God is like marriage. He's saying marriage is just an illustration of the relationship between God and his church, his bride, his people. We're so broken, we have to use marriage to help us understand our relationship with God. The imagery teaches us something else. It it teaches us that sin against God is like adultery, it's like betrayal, it's like prostitution. And the only way to avoid this kind of betrayal is a vibrant personal relationship with the living God. So let me ask you, do you seek God more than you seek anything else? Do you think about him more than you think about anything else? Are you pursuing him? Do you set aside that time? If not, listen, God is not going to allow his children to enjoy peace and rest very long if we're looking to something else besides looking to him. In fact, that's the next part of the cycle, what I call oppression or ruin That trusting in other things leads to this. These folks experience the Lord's anger in the form of failure in battle or oppression by their enemies. Other people invade and plunder them and take their stuff and enslave them. And they're subjected to forced labor and they're oppressed. Isn't that mean of God to do that to his people? He just let people come in and plunder them like that? I mean... Come on, you're ruining actual people's lives here. Well, I've got a couple of thoughts about that. First of all, I think God's merciful here. He's giving them not as bad as what they deserve. (laughs) They deserve worse than that. So God's showing some mercy here. But if you think about it, God's actually being very gracious. How do you say well, think about it with me it's not gracious to let people do whatever they want to do because it can lead to their harm we seem to understand this with our kids right if we see a parent who just lets their kids do whatever they want to do whatever they want to do we're like well, they're not loving their kids well kids need limits they need structure We don't even let them live by themselves in the state of Alabama. We'll put them into fight. they got to have somebody who's older who can speak into their lives. You can't just turn them loose and let them do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do because it's not best for them. But when God (laughs) treats his children that way, we get mad at it. Man, if my parents hadn't been there... I would have eaten Fruit Loops and Cocoa Puffs all the time, never would have brushed my teeth, I sure wouldn't have gone to school, and after we got cable, I just would have stayed home watching the Cubs in the daytime, you know, on TV, and then TBS, all the reruns, and I wouldn't have finished school. But our parents do what they think is best for us. And we have to let our Heavenly Father do what He thinks is best for us. And so this oppression, this suffering, this hardship is for our good if it causes us to run back to Him. I saw this so clearly on September the 11th of 2001. I know some of you weren't even born. You don't have to come tell me that later, that you were too great, Awesome. But if you were old enough during that time, I was practicing law at the time, and I was at a nursing, I tell people I was at a nursing home law seminar in Nevada, because that sounds better than I was staying at the Monte Carlo Casino in Las Vegas, because that's where the nursing home law seminar was. We had had the seminar on Monday, Tuesday, I was getting up and getting ready to go to the seminar. And I saw on the news what had happened. People were just out of their minds. Remember, they ground all the planes. I'm in Nevada. All the rental cars are gone. People are driving back. You can't fly. You can't do that. I'm stuck in Las Vegas. Now, I suppose there are worse places to be stuck, but you should have seen what it was like. Nobody was rolling dice, nobody was playing cards. Remember, we didn't have baseball for a few days, just stopped it, right? And I went to the sports book where they had all the TVs up there, and they were just playing CNN or, or Fox News or MSNBC, just news going all the time. And I'll never forget this as long In the sports book at the Monte Carlo, I saw Billy Graham preach... That sermon that he preached from the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. How many Billy Graham sermons do you think they played in the sports book at the Monte Carlo Casino? I'll bet you that's the only one. Because sometimes hardship can be a good thing if it turns us back to our God. The only one that can save us. Now I want to be clear. On this side of the cross, if you are a child of God, God is not angry with you as his child. He's not punishing us. Jesus has taken all the punishment. He's taken the wrath of God. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're a child of God, God's not angry with you. He's not punishing you. He's not condemning you. However, God is grieved by our sin. We can quench the Holy Spirit. We can quench His movement in our life. And God, as our Father, definitely disciplines His children for our good because God wants what's best for His kids. Hebrews 12 points this out on this side of the cross. He starts by quoting a proverb, something from the Old Testament. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then the writer of Hebrews begins to write in verse 7. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now listen, I don't know what kind of discipline you endured as a child. I can promise you it was imperfect because there are no perfect parents on earth. Maybe your parents didn't give you enough discipline. Maybe they gave you way too much. Maybe they disciplined you out of their anger and not for your good. But I want to tell you about our our Heavenly Father. He disciplines us for our good. That we might share in His holiness, that we would look more like Him. So when we go astray, we would experience hardship. And he says it's not pleasant, it is painful. So that when we would turn and we would cry out to him. I wonder, where are you experiencing hardship in your life right now? I call you today to, to let that hardship drive you back to the Lord. Run to him. Ask him, Lord, what is it that you would have for me to learn in this period of hardship? What is it that you want me to, what, do you, what is it that, that is for my good that you have for me this? And Lord, as I learn that lesson, will, will you take away the hardship? Will you take it away? Help me to learn quickly so that you can take the hardship away. I've already ventured into that third point, right? Confession, repentance, that God's people cry out to him. And when we do, God is moved to pity, the text says, by the groaning of his people. So in your hardship, cry out to him. If you're experiencing hardship, cry out to God. If you're frustrated by the direction of our country or our community cry out to God I wonder do you spend at least as much time talking to God about your hardships as you do complaining to your friends God can actually do something about it cry out to him And he's so faithful to raise up a deliverer. I was convicted again this week. I don't pray enough. When I face hardship, the first thing I do is to try to figure it out on my own. I'll handle this. I'll Google it. I'll read about it. I'll consult the experts. I'll use my relational connections, talk to somebody else who's experienced it, see if I can get input. And if all that fails, then maybe I ought to go and pray to God. How about going to him first? What if we were quicker to run to God? I think that's a good idea because God is so faithful to raise up a deliverer. You see that in the text. Every time when they cry out to him, he raised up Othniel. He raised up Ehud, he raised up Shamgar, he raised up Deborah. Every time God's people cry out to him for help, he raises up a deliverer. But it's interesting, look what happens in the text. Look at John 2 and verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies. All the days of the judge. Verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices of their stubborn ways. That's the repeat, right? They cry out to God. He raises up a deliverer. The judge comes and saves them. The Spirit of God is on the deliverer. And things go well. There's peace in the land as long as that judge lives. But when the deliverer dies, the people turn back to chasing the gods of the people around them. And we read this over and over and over again. We see this pattern repeat 12 times in the book of Judges. And it's designed to make us cry out and to say, what we need is a judge who doesn't die. We need a judge who lives with his people forever. What we need is a judge who's always there to rule and reign over our hearts. We need a judge who can rescue us not so much from being physical slaves, but who can save us from being spiritual slaves. We need a judge who doesn't just save our bodies, but one that can save our souls. And just like in the book of Judges, God is so faithful to give his people what they need. He has given us one, the Lord Jesus, who rules and reigns, whose spirit rests on us. I call you this day to cry out to him, to run to him. Let's pray together as we come and meet him at the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us this cycle in the book of Judges. Oh, Lord, I ask you publicly as I've asked you privately, show us in our hearts how this is our cycle too. Show us how we're prone to wander. Make us a people who are quick to cry out to you because you are so faithful to send a Savior when your people turn to you. I pray that you would make us quicker and quicker to turn to you and to not turn to other things. That we would look to you for all things, for for, for provision, for security, for protection. That you would provide all that we need, that we would enjoy peace and rest in you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.